Good morning to each one of you and greetings in Jesus' name. I feel a little pressure here this morning. been here the last few Sundays knows that this is becoming a theme, and I was uh, told I could continue that theme. And actually, I had been thinking along those lines anyway, and so I thought I would this morning. Perfect unity. The question I would have for you, is that even possible? Is perfect unity in a brotherhood even possible? I'm going to have to duke it out with the clock this morning because I know we have lunch coming up and council and I don't want to take away from that time. So I will try to briefly address this subject. The dictionary says unity is the state of being in full agreement, a condition of harmony, a quality or state of being made one. So the opposite of that, if we take the condition of harmony as the definition of unity, what's the opposite of harmony? It's disharmony. Disharmony is a lack of agreement that often causes unhappiness or trouble. We live in the United States of America. We don't think of that very often, but it leaves this impression that somehow or the other we got 50 states that all agree on something, I guess, were the United States. But often we find that we're very unagreeable. It seems like the key word in politics today is polarized. Totally polarized. We have something called the United Nations, which is virtually a joke. And probably the epitome of disunity and fragmentation today, as I alluded to, is the Republican Party. The Democrats aren't too far behind. I give that simply for an illustration, not that it really matters that much, but um, if you have even half an eye cocked toward politics of today, which if you don't, that's fine. That's actually you're blessed. Um, it is very much a picture of disharmony, disunity. Traditionally, the church has stressed the merits of unity. I would say our Mennonite denomination in particular, has stressed this. It's something we've put great value on. Ephesians 4, 1, 2, and 3 says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring, or in other words, making effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond or the united principle of peace. There's three words that stick out to me in that verse. And that is spirit, unity, and peace. You take away the spirit from the thing, and I will tell you, you will lack unity and peace. It will go away. It will no longer be there. The spirit both produces and his work to a degree is dependent upon our commitment to peace and unity. 
So while I believe the Spirit produces that, it also takes somewhat of a commitment on our part for the Spirit to do His work and produce even more of that particular virtue. And in today's world, unity is elusive. It just isn't happening very often, very many places, if it ever does. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 133. In interest of the short topic, I chose a short chapter, a short psalm. Contextually, Psalm 133 falls in what is known as the Psalms of Ascents, which is chapters 120 through 124, I'm sorry, 134. If these psalms were sung as the pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem during the feast times, they would sing songs on the way. I mean, a wonderful way to, um, to spend the time. And these psalms were what they would sing. And if you would read, if you would take the time to read these, these psalms, they're all relatively short, and they have a very upbeat um, uh, picture. Um, no down and outers. It's, it's all upbeat. And... Um, I like Psalm 133, um, very short, concise, and yet there's a lot we can learn. Let's read it. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. I want to tear this psalm apart a little bit and look at it bit by bit. He starts out with the word behold. Now, when you're told to behold something, that means you're supposed to put the car in park, get out, and look at it. Okay? It doesn't mean a passing glance as I'm going 65, 70 down the interstate. I quickly look this way, and then I look back. To behold something means you study it. You look at it because you may not see it again, and it's something worth your while studying. Okay? So you look at the thing. You may not have the opportunity again to look at it. How good and how pleasant. When you have good and pleasant in the same sentence that close together, that's something to behold. I want, I want you to think about this for a second. How many things in life that are good for us are not necessarily that pleasant? Ask most children if they like vegetables, and they'll say, I do not like vegetables. Are vegetables good for you? They are good for you. But some children don't find them pleasant. Even some adults don't find them pleasant. Probably all of us could find a veggie or two we don't enjoy. But they're good for us. Okay? It's good to go to the dentist and doctor sometimes. I don't find it that pleasant. But it's good. It's good to do spiritual exercises, such as fasting. But it's not pleasant. You see what I'm saying? It's good, but it's not pleasant. Now let's think about things that are pleasant but not good. Candy bars, pop, and junk food are good. I'm sorry, they're pleasant. I'm sorry, I got that mixed up. They're pleasant, but they're not really good, okay? And there are a host of sins 
That will bring a measure of pleasure. Pleasures of sin for a season. But I don't need to tell you, it's not good. It's not good for you. To find things that are both pleasant and good can be sometimes a challenge. Now, there's more things that you can find things that are pleasant and good. I, I'm not saying you can't, that the, that the two are completely mutually exclusive. But too many times they are. Brethren, brethren dwelling together in unity is just that. It is good and it is pleasant. Think of people in the Bible, real quickly, that could not dwell together in unity, and yet they were brothers. Cain and Abel. I don't know what all the dynamics were there, but those brothers could not dwell together in unity. Isaac and Ishmael. Again, brothers that ended up with strife that is still with us today. Joseph and his brothers. It says at one point that his brothers could not speak peaceably with him. We end up with a bereaved father, guilt-stricken brothers, and Joseph that endures great persecution in what he comes to call the land of his affliction. When brothers cannot dwell together in unity, this is the logical outcome. Hatred and discord. I will never forget when I was testing as a milk tester in Pennsylvania. I was asked to sub at a, at a place. I did that occasionally. And usually milking time on a farm is, is kind of a down-home time, and, and usually there's happy banter and talk, and, and um, it's, a, it's a pleasant place to be. I know some of you can't believe that, but it, it can be. And, and that's usually the way I found it, especially as a herd tester. You know, everybody tried to at least put their best foot forward whenever I was around anyway. But I remember, we'll never forget, walking into a barn I was subbing for. And these people happened to be um, Mennonites, liberal, liberal cousins. But anyway, that's, that's what they were. And I was expecting another happy time. And I walk into this barn, and it couldn't have been colder if I'd have walked into an icebox. I could tell immediately the disunity between that husband and wife was extremely obvious. I mean cold, extremely cold. I endured that milking, and I never had to go back, and I was glad I didn't. I could not imagine what it must be like when I wasn't around, unless they just didn't care, and it got no worse. And I hope that it didn't. It was not a pleasant thing, Okay. Another observation in this sentence. These brothers are dwelling together. There is close proximity. The hair is down. The idiosyncrasies are glaringly obvious. And there is a need to forbear and forgive. There is a real opportunity to forgive 490 times in a day if you need to. And yet, they can dwell together in unity. If a group of brothers can pull this off, it is something to behold. It is like the anointing oil, the precious ointment on the head. I wish I had time to do this, but sometime when you want to research the anointing oil, you turn to Exodus 30 and you look at what that anointing oil was. It was called a holy anointing oil. 
And Moses was uh, commanded of God to anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. It was crucial that the oil was applied so these people could minister in the priest's office. The oil was made of myrrh, cinnamon, calamus, and all of these spices were not exactly readily available. You just didn't go out in your backyard and get these things. You just didn't go down to the marketplace and buy this. You had to have it shipped from afar. It wasn't readily available. And this, this whole concoction was mixed up with uh, olive oil. And the process was expensive, time-consuming, and the recipe is very exacting. And the whole concoction made nine gallons. You didn't make a small dose of this stuff. You made nine gallons of the crack. That's what you made if you add up all those ingredients. So there was an, an abundance of this oil. It had a very lovely odor, and the oil was to be administered in abundance. The entire horn was emptied on the high priest's head. If you read Leviticus 8, Moses was told there to take that anointing oil and anoint everything in the tabernacle and then anoint Aaron and his sons. And it says that he sprinkled the stuff on the furniture, but when it came to Aaron, he poured it. He just poured it. And I'm told that, uh, or I read, I should say, that indeed it was, uh, it was quite, the, uh, quite the sight. Um, this oil ran down over the head, down over the beard, down over the garments, and nobody really knows how far, but it, it ran down. It was, he got a drenching of this oil. Okay, What is the application for, for us here in this, um, this anointing oil and unity? Unity in a brotherhood should be highly valued, and it has to be expected that significant effort will have to be put forth to, uh, to experience this. It comes with a price tag. It's not easy to be a unifying person. I have to forbear. I have to welcome others. I have to overlook. I have to forgive. I have to accept. I've got to do my part. That's expensive. The result, though, will be an overwhelming penetration of an extremely pleasant odor. And it will be something that, if it is present, will just flow down and it will cover a multitude of things. It won't stop at the head. The lowliest member of the body will experience some of this sweet smell and oil. You can't get too much of it, and it works best in abundance. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one spirit we are baptized into one body, whether we are bond or free, and have been made all to drink into one spirit. Unity is like the dew of Hermon. I don't know much about Mount Hermon, but I read a little about it. It's at the southern tip of the Lebanon mountain range, and it's the highest peak in the area, 9,230 feet. And it's the only place in the area that you can find snow. The highest peaks have snow. Now this mountain, I won't try to walk you through all the dynamics because I don't totally understand it myself. But there was something about this mountain that, that the snow and just the weather patterns and whatever all that came together there, the dynamics of all that, produced an abundance of dew. 
Um, I'm told that if you would camp out on certain spots of Mount Hermon, you could wake up in the morning and think of rain. So drenching with dew. And the mountain was extremely beautiful. What is the application? Brother, brotherhood, unity in a brotherhood is a beautiful thing. Let's face it, it is. It's a very beautiful thing. Dew in, on Mount Hermon was an invaluable resource. These people didn't get rain. So the vegetation in the area depended on the dew to grow. Water is needed to sustain life. And that was the water that Mount Hermon got. The application is that a brotherhood will die and cease to exist if there is not at least a degree of unity. It will, it, that will happen. And I believe that the witness to the world is greatly magnified if a brotherhood is united in its visions and goals. Dew is also a pleasant thing. Um, occasionally in the uh, summer when I'm grazing cattle, I will forget or I cannot for some reason move my fence in the, in the evening like I usually do. And so I'm forced to go out in the morning and do it before we're done milking. And that's a two-edged sword because I enjoy being out in the morning. Sun's just coming up. Uh, everything's still. The birds are singing. It's a wonderful time to be out. But sometimes the dew is so copious out there that if I don't wear knee boots or something higher, my legs are drenched. It's just like I was rained on. There's some watering getting done. But it is the most gentle way of watering something you can possibly imagine. I don't know how the Garden of Eden and, uh, and so on was watered, but we know it was with a mist. It was something like a dew, okay? So think about this a little bit. In today's world, we're used to watering things with rain. And rain's fine. There's gentle rains. There's rains that are refreshing. But how many of our rains here in the Midwest come in thunderstorms in the summer? And thunderstorms can turn violent. They can produce tornadoes. They can, it can be a wreck, okay? Did you ever hear anybody getting hurt by dew? I never did. I mean, unless you slip or something, I guess, in the stuff. But it, you don't get hurt with dew. You can get hurt with that which produces rain. Now, the question is, has anybody ever been hurt by being part of a brotherhood or a family that was just way too united in its goals and visions. It's it just like, i got to get out of here because I can't take it anymore. It's just, just, there's just too much love and unity here. I, I, I'll see you later. I, don't, I just can't take it. Yeah, that's absurd. You never, you never hear of that. Unity in a brotherhood is a gentle, healing, soothing experience. Whereas discord is a violent tornado that produces very little rain. For there, the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. In the context, what it's saying is, you want to experience God's blessing, you want to experience life forevermore, let's think about unity. Let's think about that. Where there is love and unity, there will be God's blessing. I believe the very desire of God is for the church to give the world a glimpse of what is possible. It is impossible to have unity in this world. It is possible in the church. 
they should be looking in saying, this is great. This, is, this looks good. The blessing of peace almost goes without saying. The terms are almost synonymous. We can experience the blessing of bringing up our posterity in a loving, peaceful setting that hopefully will cause the rising generation to say, you know what? It's pretty good here. I enjoy this. These people are my brothers and sisters. They care about me. I look at the world. I don't see that out there, but I, but I feel it here. I sense it here. That's a blessing. The blessing of open communication with God. Did you pick that up in the Sunday school lesson today? In the context, it says that if we're not giving ourselves to unity, we may as well just forget about praying. Because it's not God God is not going to hear our prayers, and it not only says that, he says his face is set against us. I don't know about you, but it's one thing for the Lord to just quit cocking his ear. It's another thing for him to set his face against you. I don't want to be where God's face is set against me. That's not where I want to be this morning. In Matthew, Jesus says, if you come to the altar, you remember you got something between you and your brother. You may as well just jolly well leave that gift and go be reconciled to your brother. You, you'll, be, you'll be doing much more good for your soul to be reconciled than to try to continue with your offering knowing that that's between you and your brother. We run the risk of forfeiting eternal life if we persist in habits and actions that disrupt where an environment of unity can thrive. And I believe heaven is the final culmination of divine unity. I really believe that. Read Revelation 7 sometime about that great multitude that comes from all nations, kindreds, peoples, and tongues. It sounds like unity to me. They're all saying one thing. Salvation to our God and unto the Lamb. I want to just give you just a couple of things to think about in closing here. Number one, unity and uniformity are not necessarily the same thing. Okay, let me just let me just talk about that a little bit. Uniformity is good. And it can be a result of unity, but uniformity will never produce unity in and of itself. You can have people all looking the same, but miles apart in their vision. I'd like to put it this way. Unity is a lot like singing a song. So when we sing a song here this morning... Some people sang soprano, some alto, some bass, some tenor. Any one of those parts sung by themselves outside of perhaps soprano sounds terrible. I don't like to hear someone just sing tenor. That's a horrible sound. But you put that with your soprano and alto and bass and it sounds beautiful. And we're all singing the same words. That's unity. It's unity whenever we can all take our differences and blend them with my brother's difference, and we're going to come together and we're going to sing the same words. We're going to have the same vision. Number two, sometimes we get the idea that unity is the absence of friction. That's not true. 
We have two, two tomcats at home. We used to. They were around a few weeks ago. I just thought about this morning. I haven't seen them lately. Two black tomcats. And there for a few weeks earlier, they were doing what tomcats do best. When they tangled with each other, I mean, this was a howling and a growling and just like, oh, just go somewhere. You know, I'm tired of hearing it. But you give those cats some space and everything was fine. You follow what I'm saying here? Sometimes we choose to remove ourselves from our brother so there isn't friction, but there still isn't unity. The world calls that a restraining order. You know, these two people can't get along, so we're going to put a restraining order on them so that we get a little space there and we don't have this conflict. That's the world's way of dealing with it. That is not biblical. True unity is when we can embrace the inevitable disagreements, choose to love, and wrestle through them our disagreements with the goal of not losing the precious virtue of unity. You know in the Bible, the church is called the body. You understand that concept. What part of your body do you want to be without this morning? Your nose, your liver, your kidney, your ears? Which part? None of them. You want them all. And you want them to work together. And you do not want cancer to invade that body. I think you get the illustration. The church is also called the bride. When you think of the analogy of the coming marriage of the bride to Christ and the symbolism that the communion table has as a reminder of our place in Christ, it is almost sacrilegious to partake of communion and at the same time harboring bitterness in our soul. There's something wrong with that picture. There's something wrong. Well, let me encourage you. I would like you for, with me today to determine anew to pursue this much-coveted unity. Paul had some words for the church at Colossae, and that is where I got my title for this morning. I'm going to read them to you. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And now I'm going to switch to the NIV. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect unity. May God help us as we strive for perfect unity.